No child voluntarily picks up a knife. No child stabs someone. I mean, when I was 11 years old, I was riding my bike and reading Just 17. I wasn't picking up a knife. You're like, no one chooses to do that. But I really felt that certain parts of the media were demonising these children. Even in the BBC News reporting, I just felt there was absolutely no background and no context. And it made me really angry. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. And our guest for this episode is Annabelle Dees, an investigative journalist who works at BBC Radio 5 Live and Radio 4. Annabelle has just won the Orwell Prize for Hope High, a seven-part podcast documenting the year that she spent with a community in Huddersfield where a number of children were being exploited by County Lines drug dealers. Judges described Hope High as British public service journalism impartial and hard-hitting at its best. It's, it's like a daily occurrence now. It's a daily occurrence that somebody is assaulted, stabbed, shot at, houses attacked, gang fights. During our conversation, Annabelle explains the background to her reporting, how she won a community's trust and offers her advice to young or emerging journalists who want to do this kind of investigative work. But we begin by finding out what Annabelle is most passionate about in journalism. Real people. I know that sounds sort of quite cliché, but real people that we never really hear from. I've sort of I've worked um, in BBC Radio for a long time, um, and it gets very tiresome when you're sort of constantly getting the same talking heads on, sort of bat things back and forth, and you sort of really know exactly where an argument's going to go. Um, and then sometimes there are the sort of real people that are sort of wheeled out continually as well as being the sort of real voice. I don't know if that sounds a bit too meta. <laughs> but when you actually speak to people who genuinely um, don't often speak to the media and, um, you know, give their perspective on, you know, what's going on in society, uh, what's going on in their lives and sort of really reveal something about the world that we live in. I've, I've always been sort of very interested in... Um, telling the stories of people who I sort of feel are typically underrepresented in the media, people from outside London. Sort of the first project that I did um, that I was sort of quite proud of was a project um, uh, about people who were affected by the Boxing Day floods in Yorkshire a few years ago. Um, there were sort of like thousands of people sort of living in really dire situations whose houses have been sort of flooded again and again and again, um, whose stories just sort of weren't being told in the mainstream media. Um, and I sort of did a series of essays with individuals about how the floods affected their lives. And that was the first thing that I felt really proud of. Since then, I've done a lot of stories on universal credit, um, the welfare system, adoption, um, things things in that area, thing, things... Yeah, things where people are, you know, not necessarily getting the treatment that they should get in our society. Um, and that makes me angry on, you know, almost a daily basis. So I'm always trying to sort of shoehorn those stories into um, into the mainstream news cycle, which is, you know, sometimes successful, but sometimes not. I'm also always trying to get in stories about prisons and prisoners because I feel very passionately um, about the sort of um, failings in the prison system. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, those stories don't get on air. Interestingly, um whenever we put stories on Five Live about prisoners that might sort of have an ounce of sympathy for people that are in prison, the listeners have just such little sympathy, which I find just incredibly shocking. Um, and those kind of stories 
just don't really do well, which sort of, you know, brings up a debate. Are we meant to do stories that please the audience or are we meant to sort of make the decisions for the audience? How much of a news cycle should be audience led? Um, you know, what gives me and my team, you know, the editorial authority to um, make those kind of decisions? We think you should be hearing about this or should we just give people what they want? I don't, I don't really know what my opinion is on that, but I feel those stories should be told because those people haven't got a voice. And I suppose telling the stories of people who haven't got a voice is something I personally feel really passionately about. Just to tell you a little bit about me, um, I come from you know a very middle-class background. I grew up in London. I went to a private school to age 11. Then I went to a you know, selective grammar school. Um, and then when I was in my um, early 20s, I had um, a sort of drug-induced mental breakdown and for me that was um first time I really realized that there were a lot of people in this world that might be going through really difficult stuff without any support and I realized in that moment when I was completely helpless that if I didn't have my family and my family's wealth around me I would have just fallen through the cracks and before that I always think I was quite a sort of compassionate person but that really was a huge changing point for me and made me really realise that, you know, wonderful as the NHS is, wonderful as the institutions in our country are, if you haven't got family support around you, if you haven't got a certain level of wealth in your life, you're screwed. And that's kind of informed everything I've done ever since, the sort of views that I hold, the way that I talk to people, the way I treat people, the way I judge people. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but when you sort of go through an experience like that, it really shapes who you are. I was at university, I was doing an English literature degree at Sussex University, um, I was just sort of like padding along in my life like a sort of typical 19, 20 year old idiot <laughs> and then something happened to me which sort of changed me profoundly and you know really opened up, um, yeah it opened up a lot of things. I sort of spent a few years just sort of dicking around in Brighton, um, I thought I wanted to be an artist I did sort of make sort of tentative creeps towards journalism a few times, but I just didn't really have a confidence. I sort of, my health was sort of really shattered, so I just really wasn't in a place to sort of do anything. Um, and then I got a job at the Roundhouse in Camden, which is um, a really iconic music venue. But what's not well known about it is that it has this sort of um, studios underneath where they give a lot of opportunities to people from deprived backgrounds um, Camden's a really interesting place because you've got Primrose Hill right next to sort of like Summers Town and it's like a real interesting mix, you know, it just sort of really represents, you know, the rich and poor in London really living side by side. Um, so what the Roundhouse would do, you know, there was someone like Paul McCartney playing, they would sort of put into his contract, right, Paul McCartney, you have to come down to the studios and meet these kids and, you know, give them a guitar lesson. And it was really amazing. It sort of really gave these kids who really didn't have necessarily many people believing in them these incredible opportunities. And they would give workshops to kids in like, you know, radio producing or music producing, learn to play guitar, TV production, a pound an hour on a Saturday with these first class tutors. And that, again, had a huge impact on me because I met children from very different backgrounds to me um, and I sort of saw how they lived, the lack of opportunities they had. I remember one day I was out with some of the kids who were sort of, you know, 16. I think they were from a PRU. We were just going to the corner shop to get some supplies. It was sort of middle of summer, very hot. One of them wearing a puffer jacket, like you do when you're 16. You want to be very fashionable, even though it's hot. You want to be, like, showing your feeler emblazoned on your side. And he was, um, he was Asian, and the police just stopped and searched him. And he just was not even fussed, but I was 
outrage and I was like what are you doing you know I'd never really witnessed that before and again all these sort of little things kept happening and I kept witnessing all these things and I sort of really realized that for a lot of people the world is a really unjust place um so when I sort of fell into journalism those sort of stories telling those stories were you know the things I've always been motivated to do I've spent a year in one small community in West Yorkshire finding out the truth about why a child really picks up a weapon sells drugs or ends up in prison because it's not what you think so in 2017 I think knife crime went up by about I think it was about sort of 20% and there was a lot of stories in the media about you know young black man has stabbed someone child in a gang is you know caught with a knife and I mean, I don't know if I'm sort of particularly sensitive to or interested in these topics, sort of because I'd worked with young people, but I just thought, no child voluntarily picks up a knife, no child stabs someone. I mean, when I was 11 years old, I was just, you know, riding my bike and reading Just 17. I wasn't picking up a knife. You're like, no one chooses to do that. But I really felt that certain parts of the media were sort of demonising these children. Even in the BBC News reporting, I just felt there was absolutely no background and no context, and it made me really angry that, you know, these children also might read that about themselves and think, like, oh, I'm a gangster, am I? And, you know, how that might sort of inform their future um, decisions about themselves. So that really irritated me. I don't know why, but it really, really irritated me. So I sort of, you know, decided that that was something I wanted to do. And I was working on the Emma Barnett show at the time. It was a daily news programme. We were sort of, you know, do all kinds of topical stuff. So I was always trying to crowbar those kind of stories in there. That year, I then applied to get some funding from the Winston Churchill Fellowship. And I went off to the States and sort of talked to some, you know, producers and people there about how they were telling stories about young people affected by these kind of issues. And when I came back, I managed to get some kind of project commission it wasn't necessarily you know it was good it was what turned out to be Hope High but at that time I wasn't really sure what it was but I knew that I wanted to focus on young children knife crime and county lines again was something that was sort of bubbling around and you know to me I thought you know surely the two things are connected but I didn't really know how Um, and one of my friends had a friend who was a youth worker in Huddersfield and she said that he was dealing with a lot of um, children who were being groomed by county lines dealers and I thought you know, we're always sort of looking at stories in like Liverpool, Manchester, big cities, but the majority of the country lives in small towns like Huddersfield, which just aren't really on the map. You don't really hear about them for sort of for good or bad reasons. And I thought it'd be interesting to go to one of these areas and find out what kind of support children in these areas are getting. Because again, in cities, there always seems to be a lot more funding in cities. There are youth clubs in cities, there are more opportunities in cities for young children to escape from these kind of things or, you know, not get into them in the first place because they're busy doing something else like football training or drama or what have you but in small towns I wasn't sure that that was the case so it was a combination of my friend putting me in touch with a friend of hers who was a youth worker and going and spending some time with him and just kind of curiosity really. Daniel says he brought the knife into school to protect himself not in school but on the way home but it's only a 10-minute walk from the school gate to his front door, so I say this seems unlikely, but he disagrees. He says he's seen things I haven't. I needed to find people who were willing to commit a substantial amount of time to telling their story. I needed to find people, obviously, who were going through an experience which illustrated the issue that I was trying to put attention on. 
So the way that I went about doing that was I spoke to lots of youth workers in the area. I also, I wanted to find, I suppose I wanted to find people who, who weren't being listened to, people who were in need and people whose, you know, cause I could amplify because, you know, again, in the sort of national discourse about knife crime, it seemed that there were a lot of people who weren't being listened to and the problem seemed to be getting worse and worse and I thought, you know, let's go and find out, let's speak to some of these people who are affected in this way um, and find out what help it is that they need. So I guess I was looking for people that needed help, people that were in a crisis and... The way that I went about that, as I just said, so I spoke to lots of youth workers in the area. I wanted to, you know, I spoke to lots of people because the last thing I wanted to do was to make up a story to... Because I think, I think, you know, that's very tempting for a lot of journalists to sort of go in and say, well, I've spoken to one person, I can hang it on that, that's absolutely fine. I, I did not want to do that. I didn't want to create an issue and create problems where there wasn't one. Um, and I think the fact that I went into this without any kind of plan is good and I think that's the way that this kind of journalism should be approached I think it's quite irresponsible to sort of go in and say I'm going to make this happen I'm going to find someone exactly like this I'm going to put A to B and I'm going to tell the story just like that whether it exists or not I don't give a damn I did not want to do that so I spoke to lots of youth workers I spoke to the council I spoke to police I went to charity groups I went to sort of I spoke to teachers, I spoke to all kinds of people to verify what I thought I knew to be true was actually true um I sort of went to conferences, I went to school governors meetings and then I was sort of satisfied that there was something worth looking into here. I had no idea that it was going to turn out to be how it did. I had no idea that the issue of county lines was going to be as horrific as some of the things that I encountered. It, you know, I, I really didn't know that and I think, it's, I think it's good that I didn't know that. This school is a special, special place. This school is a safe haven for so many young people and their families. This is Hope High. I mean, these issues are everywhere. Every time now that I see two 15-year-old boys missing, I can bet you any sum of money that it's county lines related. And if you Google missing boy, Hertfordshire, Leicester, Northumberland, whatever, they're everywhere, and it's always county lines. You know, children do not go missing that frequently, particularly boys of that age, um, it's county lines, it's everywhere. Karen's one of hundreds of parents around here trying to raise her family. She's part of a tight-knit community who look out for each other, which helps. But recently, it hasn't been easy. On a crisp winter's day, I went to see Karen, looking forward to hanging out with her and her two-year-old, drinking tea and staying warm indoors. But before I got there, something changed. I got a text from her saying she couldn't meet me at the house because her neighbours thought I was undercover police. But something had happened. The last thing you want anyone to think around there is that, yeah, Inwit police are not like that because they'd push you off the estate. Everybody would. <laughs> the one thing that they don't have is grass and people that affiliate too much with police. I guess on a very practical level, I sort of came in and met the parents via the school and the fact that the teachers had sort of vetted me and given me their approval was you know, the first step in the parents trusting me. Um, I then would sort of meet with the parents several times and really explain exactly what it was I was trying to do because I did not want to pressure anyone into it. And I, you know, I made it very clear that this podcast could, you know, potentially get a lot of coverage and their story would be out there in the world. But I think when it came down to it, the families who I interviewed and spent a lot of time with were just at their wits end. They were absolutely desperate. And that particular parent um, 
Karen, she had appealed to the police, she'd appealed to social services, she just wasn't getting the support that she needed and she just thought if you know, if she spoke to me that would sort of hopefully make some changes and raise awareness of the issues. So she was you know, she was incredibly brave. She was willing to risk risk the ire of her neighbours. Um, you know, I would always meet her neighbours and sort of chat to people. I would sort of I was sort of wearing I guess what was a sort of smartish black winter coat and um that was why people thought I was an undercover cop. And again, you know, I think with the teachers and with the, the contributors, something I should point out is that I had, you know, quite a, I had a sort of editorial agreement with them that if there was anything I recorded that they were unhappy with, they had a certain amount of time where they could say, do you know what, delete that. I don't want you, I don't want you to use that. I didn't want to do any kind of gotcha journalism. It was these people's lives that I was dealing with. And again, I think the fact that I agreed that and I did delete things on several occasions might make some journalists think, really, you could have some golden stuff there. But that wasn't what I was in it for, you know, and I, I didn't want to put anyone in danger. So the fact that I was, you know, willing to delete stuff, willing to meet people on their terms and, you know, not pressuring people, I think helped to win people's trust. Looking after several young children on your own is a lot. But Karen takes it all in her stride. And in some ways, she looks like a big kid herself. She's got long, curly hair, which falls down past her shoulders, a sparkly nose ring, and she likes to wear offbeat, irreverent hoodies, like the one she's wearing today, showing a bucket of KFC chicken. But instead of KFC, it says THC. Oh, and she loves a bit of UK garage. Karen, Daniel's mum, we sort of, we're the same age, um... We were both 35 at the time of recording and I just couldn't... Just the difference in our lives was incredible. You know, I would come back to South Manchester every day. You know, I live in a terraced house and I just think, Jesus, I live in a palace. Like, my life compared to hers is just unreal, you know. And I'm not especially wealthy or especially anything, but I would come into my house and just think, I have unimaginable wealth, like, it's insane. You know, she had a number of young children. The fact that she had to let drug dealers into her house to make her feel protected was just horrifying, absolutely horrifying, you know. And the lack of support that she had was just just horrendous. But, you know, she lived life. She was a very joyful person. I think she was a fantastic mother. She was judged by all kinds of people, who were just like, how on earth could you let those kind of people in your house to take care of your children? But they just didn't understand the position that she was in, you know? People go home at the end of the day and she still had these incredibly dangerous people loitering around her house. No one would come and help her. You know, I think in one of the episodes she says the police put, like, a a guard on her letterbox because, you know, people in the area were having firebombs thrown into their letterbox. And she's like, well, that's the letterbox. What about the windows? What about the doors? And sometimes she would be laughing because it was just so ridiculous. And I would just be like, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. You're completely left alone. But, you know, she was a joyful person. And, you know, we, I thought she was great. But the fact that she had to leave her child to protect her other children... You know, I, I just sort of, you know, we're, we're, in, we're, in, we're in some contact now, but I, her life's very chaotic. And, you know, I often wonder about how she is and I wonder about what impact that's had on her other children. I wonder how she would have done things differently. I wonder how her life would be if she'd had the kind of support that she should have had. So, yeah, it makes me quite sad, but, 
you know, thank God she sort of had the spirit that she did. I think if it had just been a series of interviews on a one-off programme, that just wouldn't have done justice to the incredible complexity that a lot of these people were living in. And podcasts give space um, to sort of tell those really complex stories. And also a lot of the time, when you're listening, well, I don't know if it's just me, but when you're listening to a news report and there's a lot of sort of stats in there and there's a lot of personal stories in there and then there's back to some more stats, it can just get a bit overwhelming and people just kind of switch off and they're like... Huh? That's why a lot of people just don't understand universal credits. It's just too complicated, and they just think I can't deal with it. Like I don't want to listen to this. It's too much. And I think you know, county lines is the same in a way. People sort of think child criminal exploitation, lack of this, lack of support. What? What? It's too much. But with the sort of space that a podcast gives you, you can tell that story in a more creative way, where you can really engage people. You know, you can sort of have the light and shade. There are sort of some quite fun bits in it. So it's not sort of one long doom and gloom report. And that way people begin to engage with an issue on a personal level through people rather than just through a news report. And it begins to take on a greater level of meaning. And I really wanted people to understand the complexity of child criminal exploitation um, through people, through the people whose lives it affected rather than just a sort of dry news report with a couple of talking heads and you know potentially a minister or someone from a charity I wanted people to learn about it from someone whose whose life it, it affected and to sort of do it over a long period of time so they could sort of learn about all the different kinds of effects um, and I guess a podcast is kind of like a TV box set in a way you know you can sort of unravel complex issues over a number of episodes and you know make it sort of you know multi, you know multi, multi, multiple narratives going on and so it, it just worked really well for that and I absolutely used, you know, cliffhangers as a way of sort of keeping people interested. Um, I really wanted people to listen to the whole thing and I wanted them to understand the issues. So you do absolutely have to sort of use the drama of a situation to keep people interested. Um, I mean, you know, sort of developing characters in inverted commas. Um, so, I, you know, I was very um, aware of getting different ways of getting people to sort of engage with the different characters, the people who are in it. So... You know, when you first meet Maureen, I sort of meet her in her house, which I'd sort of describe as like, I think like a sort of concrete floored garage, because I really wanted to paint a picture of the kind of life she was living. And then again, later, I think it's in episode six or seven, I can't remember, when she describes how she has this guy come round to her house and he cleans it naked for £500. You know, that's not really relevant to the story of County Lines but it tells a lot about her as a person and it was actually very funny the way that she told it you know I was crying with laughter she was a hilarious woman she had some terrible stuff going in her life but she was just hilarious and I would just you know we just spent a lot of time talking absolute rubbish and then when she talks about her and her daughter going off to um, the Caribbean just to get high and have a good time that was you know it makes you like it made me like them I thought they were fantastic but you have to put that in to get people to think, oh, this is a whole person. They live a whole life. They're not just living this grim, awful reality. I mean, that's one part of their life. But very human. You know, they, she enjoys reggae. She likes getting high. She has this man. She's, like, potentially gaming the universal credit system. And then you think, wow, if she'd been given some opportunities in life and some education, she could have gone far. I often thought that about her. She was a very bright lady. She was very switched on. Including that kind of stuff, just it really humanised people, and I thought that was really important. Uh, 
Um, at the moment, I'm working on a few different investigations. I'm working with the current affairs team at Radio 4, um, looking at a few different issues. Um, I've pitched a couple of podcasts. don't think I can say what they are yet. But um, one thing that I would be... One thing that I'm really passionate about um, is um, the lives of um, sort of the rights or lack of rights for gypsies and travellers in this country. And I would really like to make a piece um, sort of really showcasing the lack of rights um, and the sort of racism and discrimination that that particular group of people face. Because I think, I can't remember who it was, but someone said a few years ago that that is, you know, racism against travellers, the last, racism against travellers is the last acceptable form of discrimination and racism in this country. And I believe that is true. I think when I started out as a journalist, I was sort of sitting around waiting for people to reply to my emails. No one replies to emails. Just pick up the phone, talk to people, make a human connection. It's the only way to get anything done. Um, And just believe in yourself, you know. Your skills are unique to you. You know, the reason I sort of mentioned that, you know, mental health trauma that I had in my 20s is because it really informed who I was and gave me an outlook and a sort of, you know, perception of the world that was unique to me um, and sort of my understanding and the sort of the way I expressed myself and, you know, difficult as that was at the time, now I'd say, you know, it really has given me a greater understanding and sort of helps me to connect with people. Um, So, you know, value the things in your life that are good as well as bad because they will inform the way you see the world and ultimately your journalism. And you can listen to Hoop High on BBC Sounds, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your audio. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.